For the first few centuries of the Catholic Church's existence, the Pope was seen as a father figure to the diocese in Rome. He was an important man, the successor of St. Peter, who is traditionally considered the first Pope. But he was not so different from other bishops. When the Roman Empire fell in the 400s, however, there was a power vacuum, one that the Pope filled. No longer just a spiritual leader for Christians in Rome, he started to exert political and military strength. As Christianity spread throughout medieval Europe, the Pope's influence helped dictate life among its various kingdoms despite cultural differences. He and the Church became the unifying factor in a chaotic time. And his power, political and religious, grew. At times, he was a kingmaker, like when he crowned Charlemagne as Holy Roman Emperor. Other times, he demanded every Christian nation drop what they were doing to reclaim Jerusalem. Even when the papacy's influence diminished during troubled times, when schisms tore the church apart, the Pope always returned stronger than ever. By the time the Renaissance began in the 1400s, the Pope was one of the most powerful men in Europe. And a job with that kind of power attracted men of sin. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In this season of Dictators, we're heading to the Vatican to explore some of the most tyrannical and corrupt popes to lead the Catholic Church, including Alexander VI, Julius II, and Leo X. This week, we begin our dive into the life of Pope Alexander VI, better known as Rodrigo Borgia. A Spaniard living in Rome, Borgia survived the deadly game of papal politics for over three decades, earning a reputation for his cunning intelligence. And when the time was right, he maneuvered his way into one of the most sought-after seats of power, the papacy. Next week, we'll explore Alexander's tumultuous pontificate, during a time of total chaos, Alexander managed to stave off French domination of Italy, placate his relatives' ambitious power grabs, and dodge nasty rumors of murder, corruption, and incest. Coming up, we'll head to the Papal States. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As the Middle Ages drew to a close, the Italian peninsula was in a unique position. The bulk of the West consisted of competing kingdoms, 
Some were large, like France and the Holy Roman Empire, while others were small, like England, Castile, and Aragon. But instead of being ruled by feudal kings, the peninsula was, for the most part, broken into city-states. These were ruled not by kings, but by various aristocratic families who controlled commerce. The Republic of Florence was controlled by the banker-merchant family, the Medici. Milan was lorded over by the tyrannical Sforzas, and Venice under a doge operated as a strange oligarchic republic. According to historian G.J. Meyer, there were two reasons the peninsula had such an unusual political system. First, unlike Northern Europe, the societies on the Italian peninsula were organized by towns that were able to unite in advancing their commercial interests. And second, remnants of the old commerce-focused Roman laws persisted through the region. There were, however, two anomalies. The first was the Kingdom of Naples. Making up the southern half of the peninsula, Naples was a true royal kingdom that resembled the rest of feudal Europe. The second were the Papal States. Encompassing land in present-day central Italy, this territory fell under the power of the Catholic Church's secular arm, the Holy See in Rome, and its sovereign ruler was none other than the Pope. Unfortunately for the Pope, at the start of the 1300s, the Papal States were not an easy assignment for any ruler. The Church was in crisis. Rome had devolved into a cesspool of crime and depravity. Neither the Church nor the powerful Roman barons, the constantly feuding Orsini and Colonna families, could do much about it. At the same time, the College of Cardinals, the senior members of the clergy, had increasingly come under French influence. So in 1309, fleeing from the anarchy of Rome, Pope Clement V moved the papal headquarters to Avignon, France. Calls for the church to return to Rome and save the city from itself were constant during this period. And in 1377, Pope Gregory XI decided to do just that. But right after he moved back, he died. In response to popular demand in Rome for an Italian pope, an Italian archbishop was chosen to fill the role, which angered the French cardinals. So they declared the Italian pope invalid, returned to Avignon, and elected a Frenchman of their own. For the next 40 years, there were two popes claiming to be legitimate. This fracture, known as the Western Schism, ended in 1417 when a compromise was reached. Rome officially became HQ for the church again, and the Pope would restore the city to its former glory. Unfortunately, peace was always elusive for the church. In 1442, Alfonso V, King of Aragon, conquered Naples. He hoped to install his illegitimate son, Ferrante, to the throne. The problem? He needed the Pope to recognize the claim's legitimacy in order for Europe's Christians to accept it, which was going to be tough since Alfonso and the Pope were at odds. Thankfully, both sides avoided bloodshed and a deal was struck. Ironically, the most consequential outcome wasn't that the deal paved the way for Ferrante to become king, but that a Spanish bishop named Alonso de Borja, whose last name was Italianized to Borgia, negotiated the peace. As a token of gratitude, the Pope elevated de Borgia to cardinal in 1444. 
Moving to Rome, Cardinal Borgia quickly earned a reputation for being apolitical in the highly political and contentious College of Cardinals. The decision proved wise. In 1455, Pope Nicholas V died, and when the time came to pick a new pope, none of the favored cardinals were able to pull the necessary votes. Fearing another schism, the cardinals agreed to a compromise. They elected the harmless and inoffensive Cardinal Borgia. The aging de Borgia immediately performed two time-honored papal traditions. First, he changed his name and became Calixtus III. Second, he doled out special favors and titles to family members. In 1456, Calixtus made his nephew, Pedro Luis Borgia, Captain General of the Papal Armed Forces, and he named Pedro Luis's older brother, 26-year-old Rodrigo, a cardinal. That simple act put Rodrigo Borgia on the road to power. Little is actually known about Rodrigo Borgia prior to his cardinalship, except that his uncle had already been granting him favors. This kind of nepotism was the norm in the church. Because the holy men weren't technically allowed to have children, high-ranking church officials favored their nephews, usually setting them up with benefices. A benefice was essentially a regional ecclesiastical office which generated an income. That's exactly what Calixtus procured for Rodrigo. But his aid didn't stop there. He even asked other popes to skirt the rules for the young man. For example, when Rodrigo was 18 and living in Rome, he technically wasn't allowed to receive the income being generated from his benefices back in Aragon. However, Uncle Alonso convinced the then-pope to issue a bull or a papal decree to make an exception. Thus, Rodrigo earned his income despite not living in the location where the income was generated. Still, apparently Rodrigo didn't take his privileges for granted. By all accounts, he was said to be highly intelligent, gifted, and a capable student. In the early 1450s, he earned a degree in canon law at the University of Bologna. Allegedly, he graduated the five-year program in less than a single year, leading to some rumors that the degree was actually purchased. Regardless, Rodrigo dedicated himself to each and every office he was gifted. And as his uncle climbed the ecclesiastical ranks, so too did Rodrigo, culminating with his cardinalship. As Pope, Calixtus did have some problems to address, aside from his nephew's career. On the one hand, the Ottoman Turks threatened to invade Europe from Constantinople. Calixtus decided a crusade was in order to quell the threat. At the same time, many towns within the Papal States had started to fall into the hands of warlords. So Calixtus sent men to reassert Vatican authority within those fallen towns. According to historian G.J. Meyer, Rodrigo was part of this effort. He was sent to the town of Ascola in a region known as the March. A tyrant named Josias was living in a fortress outside town from which he led a gang of bandits and terrorized the countryside. Rodrigo's job was to defeat him and, as Calixtus may have hoped, prove himself a leader. Upon his arrival, Rodrigo took the reins of the city. And while we don't know the specifics, we do know this. In no time at all, Josias was in chains in the belly of a Roman prison. 
For the next several months, Rodrigo remained in the march and successfully reasserted papal authority over the entire region. Again, while the specifics are unclear, his efforts earned him a reputation as a liberator and a benevolent administrator. A delighted Uncle Calixtus called Rodrigo back to Rome for a promotion to vice-chancellor. In essence, Rodrigo was now Calixtus's right-hand man, controlling the majority of Vatican administration, leading revenue collection, and running what amounted to the judicial branch of the church. Not even 30 years old, and Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia was one of the most powerful men in Rome. Rodrigo's meteoric rise brought him considerable wealth and influence in Rome and throughout the Papal States. He must have known that he had reached a position very few Spaniards had ever achieved, and that he couldn't squander it. Uncle Calixtus laid the foundation for a Borgia dynasty. Rodrigo was going to make sure it lasted. Unfortunately, not everyone wanted to see that. Attempting to reassert papal authority throughout the states was a historically vicious cycle. In the past, popes had used the competing Orsini and Colonna families against each other in a complicated game of who's on top. Calixtus realized this was a destructive pattern, which is why he put Rodrigo's brother Pedro Luis in charge of the papal army with orders to take down the Orsini. By April 1457, Pedro Luis's army swept through Orsini-controlled towns and captured them for the Vatican, much to the delight of the Colonna. Not everyone within Rome and the Papal States was pleased, however. Who was this Spaniard to decide the fate of Italians? Adding to Calixtus's problems was the situation brewing down in Naples. In June 1458, Alfonso V of Aragon passed away. Through the deal that Calixtus had brokered years earlier, Alfonso's illegitimate son, Ferrante, was now king. However, in the years since the deal, Calixtus and Alfonso's relationship had turned sour. Alfonso wanted more authority over who became bishop in Aragon, and Calixtus, naturally, refused to relinquish that power. So when Alfonso died, Calixtus began stirring the pot regarding who should inherit the throne. And so Calixtus issued a bull that claimed Naples as part of the Holy See. This drew the ire of Ferrante, who decided to move his army north toward Rome. In response, Pedro Luis moved his army south toward Naples. The summer of 1458 seemed destined to rain blood. But then, the unthinkable happened. In July, 79-year-old Pope Calixtus fell ill to the point of being incapacitated. At the time, Rodrigo was on a retreat outside of Rome. When he got word of his uncle's condition, he immediately returned. So too did Pedro Luis. Rumors spread that the Pope was knocking on heaven's door, and the Borgia's enemies, namely the Orsini, decided now was as good a time as any to strike back at the Spaniards. High on their list of targets were Rodrigo and Pedro Luis, Within a matter of days, the knives were out for the Brothers Borgia. Coming up, Rodrigo makes a daring move to secure his future within the Vatican. The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public, 
and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In July 1458, Pope Calixtus III, the patriarch of the nascent Borgia dynasty, became gravely ill. The family's Italian enemies, the Orsini family in particular, saw it as their opportunity to seek revenge against the hated Spaniards. As the leader of the papal army, Pedro Luis was public enemy number one. He needed to get out of Rome fast. But street gangs were looking for him across the city. Violence was breaking out in alleyways as angry citizens looked to settle scores. Escape seemed like an impossible feat. But the Borgia brothers had a plan. On August 5, 1458, Pedro Luis gathered a small army of about 3,200 men and marched through Rome. Rodrigo rode alongside them. The goal was to make a grand show of Pedro Luis's departure. But that wouldn't get them through the city's Orsini-controlled exits. So, with a smaller unit of soldiers, Rodrigo broke off to blend in with the crowds. Among them was Pedro Luis in disguise. When the small party arrived at the gate, all eyes were on the big parade, and the Borgia brothers slipped past the Orsini men undetected. Their plan had worked. There was little time to celebrate the triumph, unfortunately. Safely outside the city's walls, Rodrigo and Pedro Luis said their goodbyes. Though he knew it was a risk, Rodrigo knew he wasn't as high on the Orsini's hit list as his brother. And he also knew that staying in Rome and helping to choose the new pope would give him a chance to salvage the Borgia name. He'd risk death if he had to. He wasn't ready to give up. As fate would have it, it was Pedro who died first. He managed to escape to the coastal town of Civitavecchia, but a month later he became ill, likely with malaria, and died. Meanwhile, back in Rome, Rodrigo returned to the Vatican and his ailing uncle's side, ready to fight for his future. The fight came quickly. The day after Pedro Luis's escape, Pope Calixtus III closed his eyes for the last time. Anarchy engulfed Rome. But Rodrigo ignored the chaos and focused on the crucial question, who would be the next pope? Conclave began on August 16, 1458. The heavy favorite was the Cardinal of Rouen, Guillaume d'Estouteville. D'Estouteville was wealthy and ambitious, everything one expected of a pope in the 1400s. Of course, that didn't mean there weren't others vying for the papacy. The only one not 
politicking for the papal tiara was Rodrigo Borgia. Instead, he just sat back and watched as de Stuteville attempted to draw closer and closer to the necessary two-thirds majority. But on the evening of August 18th, another cardinal, Enea Piccolomini, learned some distressing news. As it turned out, much of de Stuteville's behind-the-scenes vote-gathering was being done, of all places, in a bathroom. This angered Piccolomini. How dare the next pope be decided next to a toilet? He needed to be stopped. The first person Piccolomini approached was Rodrigo Borgia. Rodrigo had already voted for de Stuteville, believing his ascension was inevitable. However, after Piccolomini complained about how debased the politicking had become, Rodrigo saw an opportunity. Especially considering that thanks to the slow pace of the voting so far, a new voting process was triggered to hurry things up. Voting by accession. The process entails the cardinals sitting in silence, waiting for one of them to change their vote and accede to another candidate in front of everyone. Tensions were high. No man wished to cast the first stone. Eyes darted back and forth. But finally, Rodrigo Borgia stood up and announced that he was changing his vote and casting it for Cardinal Piccolomini. Now Piccolomini only needed one more vote to guarantee the two-thirds majority. Soon after, Cardinal Prospero Colonna stood up to change his vote as well. And before long, Piccolomini became Pope Pius II. In his first conclave, Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia, still not even 30, practically chose who was going to be the most powerful man in Christendom. As such, he not only secured his safety in Rome, but was handsomely rewarded. Under Pius II, Cardinal Borgia thrived. He and Pius quickly became a team, and Rodrigo remained vice-chancellor. Not only that, Pius took on the father figure role left empty by Calixtus, and taught Rodrigo a great deal about the behind-the-scenes machinations of Vatican politics. Rodrigo also devoted himself to Pius's agenda. At the top of the list was resuming Calixtus's crusade against the Turks. The key to this was organizing a summit with the heads of all the Christian European kingdoms to discuss plans. At the beginning of 1459, Rodrigo accompanied Pius to the northern city of Mantua where the summit was to be held. Once they arrived, they waited, and waited, and waited. And no one showed up. Many of the invited nations either were embroiled with problems of their own or hoped to make private deals with the Turks. France was simply angry with the Vatican, since Pius supported Ferrante's claim to Naples and not France's. Despite the lack of enthusiasm from the rest of Europe, Pius remained resolute. He issued a bull saying that the crusade was going to happen regardless and that it would begin in 1464. Then he, Rodrigo, and the rest of the papal entourage made its way back to Rome. Along the way, they rested in Siena, where Cardinal Borgia found himself embroiled in his first major scandal. In June 1460, 29-year-old Rodrigo received a distressing letter from Pius. Pius had discovered that Rodrigo and another cardinal attended a garden party, enjoyed the company of women, and that the, quote, dances were immodest, 
and the seductions of love beyond the bounds. Even more damning, the letter accused Rodrigo of giving pretext to those who condemned the Vatican of using its, quote, wealth and high office for orgies. The letter ended with Pius voicing his disappointment and anger with Rodrigo for acting in an undignified manner. Should this behavior continue, he warned, Rodrigo would face severe punishment. As Rodrigo read his benefactor's accusations, he knew that this had the potential to completely undo him. He also knew he needed to explain himself, and fast. Rodrigo's response is, sadly, lost to history. However, whatever he said must have put Pius's fears to rest. A few days later, the Pope wrote a much calmer letter to his protege. Pius granted Rodrigo a pardon and acknowledged that the initial indiscretions may have been less egregious than initially reported. However, Pius did urge Rodrigo to, quote, refrain henceforth from such indiscretions and to take the greatest care of your reputation. Most historians, however, agree that the handsome and charismatic Rodrigo had no intention of stopping his Bacchanalian ways. Instead, he opted to be more careful in the future. Other historians, like G.J. Meyer, call the garden orgy allegations vastly overblown. It could have just been an attempt to slander the clergy. Myers points out that if there were any truth to the accusation, Pope Pius wouldn't have kept Rodrigo so close to him in the scandal's wake. Whether or not the orgy occurred, the scandal had the potential to end Rodrigo's career. Instead, he dodged the bullet. For now. For the next several years, Rodrigo tried to keep a low profile. His reputation for ostentatious housing and wild spending were offset by his dedication to the organization of Pius's crusade against the Turks. Unfortunately for Pius II, however, enthusiasm for the crusade throughout Europe was non-existent. In the summer of 1464, he hoped to drum up support by announcing that he would personally lead the attack. But when he reached Ancona, the launch point, he became gravely ill and died. Rodrigo was with Pius in Ancona and also fell ill. His condition became so grave that doctors initially believed he too wouldn't make it. Based on his symptoms, rumors spread that Rodrigo suffered from a sexually transmitted disease. Today, there is still debate about the claim. Unfortunately for Rodrigo's detractors, however, he recovered and returned to Rome for conclave. Unlike the previous conclave, Rodrigo didn't play a major role in the politicking. To his credit, because the next pope, Paul II, was not beloved and deeply damaged the church's reputation. Over the course of his reign, Paul abused his power by appointing cardinals, adding to his personal splendor, and antagonizing barons throughout the papal states. While this may seem par for the course, Paul II had rubbed enough people the wrong way that the College of Cardinals, including Rodrigo, wanted someone who was the complete opposite to be his successor. When he died in the summer of 1471, they got their chance. Like all conclaves, 1471 was divided into two main factions, and Rodrigo wanted neither leading candidate to don the papal tiara. So after the first round of votes, Rodrigo began lobbying for Cardinal Francesco della Rovere. 
At 57 years old, De La Rovere was intelligent, pious, and harmless, the opposite of Paul II. In Rodrigo's eyes, he was perfect. So in August 1471, Rodrigo Borgia successfully got De La Rovere elected. The new pope dubbed himself Sixtus IV. Unfortunately for Rodrigo, Sixtus turned out to look a whole lot different from the innocuous De La Rovere. As it turned out, Sixtus's previous life as a cardinal was all smoke and mirrors. Within a few months of his election, Sixtus revealed himself to be just as corrupt as the popes of the past, and then some. Not only did he accept bribes, live lavishly, and use intimidation to get what he wanted, he also kept the tradition of elevating family to church roles. Except Sixtus couldn't contain himself. While some popes, even Paul II, eventually capped themselves on the nepotism, Sixtus had no such discretion. If Rodrigo had reservations about Sixtus's sudden change of disposition, it's likely he kept his mouth shut. After all, he was financially benefiting from Sixtus's reign. Sixtus gave Rodrigo another bishopric and abbey and kept him on as vice-chancellor. And Sixtus did also take up the mantle of Calixtus's crusade against the Turks. Sixtus wanted to succeed where the rest had failed, and Rodrigo was still invested in his uncle's mission. This time, however, they would take a new approach. Instead of calling a summit with the hopes that European powers would attend, Sixtus sent five cardinals on a diplomatic mission throughout Europe to appeal to regions personally. Rodrigo Borgia was assigned the most daunting of territories, the Iberian Peninsula. The region contained four major Christian kingdoms, Aragon, Castile, Navarre, and Portugal. At any given moment, they were at war with each other. Making matters worse, the Muslim Moors still controlled the southern region of Granada. In the view of the Spanish Christians, they posed an immediate threat, unlike the Ottoman Turks across the Mediterranean. Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia knew he faced an uphill battle, but he also knew that if he played his cards right, he'd be able to form important alliances, which could serve him in the future. Little did he realize he was about to become friends with the most powerful couple in the world. Coming up, Rodrigo Borgia legalizes a powerful marriage and forges his path to the papacy. Now, back to the story. With the election of Pope Sixtus IV, the Vatican became even more determined to begin a crusade against the Ottoman Turks. But instead of organizing a summit on the Italian peninsula, the Pope sent his cardinals throughout Europe to raise support. Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia was sent to his homeland of Aragon. In June 1472, Rodrigo arrived in Valencia to a hero's welcome. Outside of the royal families, he was the most important man on the Iberian Peninsula. By now, he was the only Spanish cardinal serving in Rome. But as Rodrigo basked in the glory, he knew he had to get down to business. As expected, no one really wanted to participate in the crusade. They had problems of their own. For example, Aragon was in the midst of dealing with a civil war in one of its territories, Catalonia. Taking a page out of Uncle Calixtus's book, Rodrigo decided he would play peacemaker. 
Rodrigo convinced the rebelling Catalans barricaded in Barcelona to accept Aragonese rule. In exchange, he convinced the Aragonese to grant pardons to the Catalan holdouts. Next on the agenda was the legitimization of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand's marriage. The two had already been married for a few years, but because they were cousins, they needed a papal dispensation to make it official. Enter Rodrigo Borgia. Sixtus granted Rodrigo the power to authorize the sought-after dispensation, and with a flick of his quill, the marriage was legal in the eyes of the church. Rodrigo also helped negotiate Isabella's claim to the Castilian throne. For years, she had been at odds with her half-brother, King Enrique IV, and his maybe-daughter, Juana. After spending a few weeks with Isabella, Rodrigo gained an immense respect for the queen. So he decided to convince a powerful Spanish family to support Isabella's claim. All it took was the promise of a cardinal hat for that family. After a year of wheeling and dealing, Rodrigo Borgia managed to settle a few scores, gain critical support of powerful future kings and queens, and secure assistance for Sixtus's crusade. Though the promised resources and manpower were modest, they were more than any of the other cardinals had mustered. So, with nothing left to do, the time had come to return to Rome. In the fall of 1473, Rodrigo and his entourage sailed back to Rome. But in October, just off the coast of Pisa, their ships were caught in a storm. Though Rodrigo miraculously survived, many in the entourage were killed. At least one galley carrying 200 passengers sank. Rodrigo traveled to Pisa to recuperate. According to historian Christopher Hibbert, while in Pisa, Rodrigo attended a banquet where he allegedly met a young woman named Venoza de Catani. Rodrigo was immediately taken by the intelligent beauty. So much so that she soon became Rodrigo's mistress. Throughout the next several years, the pair had four, possibly seven, children. The four that history remembers were Cesare, Juan, Lucrezia, and Joffre. In the five centuries since the Borgias held power in Rome, there has been much debate as to whether or not the Borgia children were actually Rodrigo's. Most historians acknowledge that they are. However, some argue that it was impossible for Rodrigo to be the father. Historian G.J. Meyer proclaims that the birth dates of all the children don't correspond to the timeline of Rodrigo's locations. All the children were said to be born in Spain, and yet Rodrigo never returned there after his diplomatic mission. Instead, Meyer posits that the father was actually Rodrigo's nephew, the son of his eldest sister. Thus, they would be Rodrigo's grandnephews and niece. And because there was already a tradition of nepotism among cardinals, it made sense that Rodrigo took them under his wing. But we're going to stick with the tradition that Cesare, Juan, Lucrezia, and Jaffre were Rodrigo's illegitimate children, especially considering the great lengths Rodrigo would go to secure power for all of them. When Rodrigo finally returned to Rome, he was shocked to discover just how bad Sixtus's nepotism had become. Sixtus had granted his various nephews so much power, many of them were actually feuding amongst themselves and alongside the Orsini and Colonna barons. As such, Rodrigo's power within the Vatican diminished. 
Though Rodrigo remained vice chancellor, Sixtus relied more on his nephews. For the most part, Rodrigo spent the rest of Sixtus's pontificate sitting back and waiting. He knew it was suicide to interfere with feuds between Sixtus's nephews, especially as their quarrels led to various wars and disputes with other city-states. Power in Rome was fickle. Now in his fifties, Rodrigo knew how to play the game. And he knew the next stage would come soon enough, when Sixtus died. It happened in August 1484, and for the first time in his career, Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia was considered a viable candidate to become Pope. He had the experience, and despite some minor scandals, a fairly good reputation. Unfortunately, Rodrigo wasn't able to secure enough of a block. Instead, he decided to play Pope Maker again. This time, though, he teamed up with Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, and together they successfully orchestrated the election of Giovanni Battista Cibo, aka Pope Innocent VIII. But the alliance between Rodrigo and Giuliano was short lived. Under Innocent VIII, Rodrigo remained vice-chancellor and received more benefices. But Giuliano became the favorite. That is, until Giuliano squandered his goodwill. In 1485, Naples became embroiled in turmoil yet again. Various barons throughout the region hated the tyrannical King Ferrante and rebelled. Giuliano urged Innocent VIII to side with the barons while Rodrigo advised the Pope to wait and see how things played out before addressing the conflict. Innocent VIII sided with Giuliano, and papal troops were sent to fight against Ferrante. They lost. Innocent VIII knew who had advocated for war. As punishment, Giuliano became less influential at the Vatican, much to Rodrigo Borgia's delight. He was once again on top. But yet another successful chapter of his life was about to come to an end. At the end of July 1492, Pope Innocent VIII died. For the fifth time in his career, Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia participated in choosing the new Pope. On August 6th, the College of Cardinals met once more for conclave. For the next five days, the Cardinals, with the various factions, remained in a deadlock. Among the leading candidates were Rodrigo Borgia and Giuliano della Rovere. And after being passed over years earlier, Rodrigo refused to bow out and look for an alternative. He knew that at 61 years old, this was likely his final chance. But there was one other candidate with a significant faction, Cardinal Ascanio Sforza. Hailing from the very powerful Sforza family of Milan, Sforza showed serious interest in the papacy. However, by day five, Sforza realized he was never going to secure enough votes for the victory. But that didn't mean he was going to allow Della Rovere to win the deadlock. Della Rovere had support of Naples and Venice, who were currently at odds with Milan. So Sforza dropped out and urged his supporters to back Rodrigo Borgia instead. Before the morning was finished, white smoke billowed from the papal chimney, indicating a new pope had been chosen. Allegedly, once the tally finished, Rodrigo shouted in ecstasy, I am Pope! I am Pope! Pope Alexander VI, he dubbed himself. 
Almost immediately, rumors circulated that the new pope had purchased his votes. Allegedly, four mules were needed to carry wagons of gold to Cardinal Sforza's house. But these were likely just rumors. Historian G.J. Meyer argues that the wealth of the Sforzas and De La Rovere eclipsed Rodrigo's, making it unlikely for Rodrigo to outbid either of them. Regardless, in August 1492, Rodrigo Borgia was now Pope Alexander VI. News of his election brought mixed reactions. Nascent power couple Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon were quite enthusiastic about having a friend and Spaniard as Pope. Meanwhile, France, Venice, and Naples were instantly placed on edge. King Ferrante, in particular, worried what could happen under a Borgia pontificate. According to Meyer, when word reached Ferrante, he wept, likely out of sheer terror that the new pope was someone who couldn't be controlled. If there's any truth to that, Ferrante was onto something. Because for the next 11 years, the reign of Pope Alexander VI would be filled with nepotism, corruption, murder, and war with France. But this wasn't just business as usual. Pope Alexander had a plan. He was determined to not only exercise as much power as possible, but to make sure the dynasty his uncle created expanded far beyond the Vatican. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll cover the reign of Alexander VI as he battles the French and orchestrates power grabs for his children. Among the many sources we used, we found The Borgias, The Hidden History by G.J. Meyer incredibly useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.